Please go ahead and be seated. Just a note to Ari, uh, pastors make mistakes too. I remember one time I went to uh, preach at a church, uh, filling in for another pastor, but I went the week before I was scheduled to preach. <laughs> that was awkward. So thank you, Ari, for leading us, and, and it was great singing. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Um, please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. We're going to be looking at a vision in this uh, remarkable little book of Zechariah. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. This is God's word. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I, Zechariah, said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as we come before your word now, as our Savior prayed for us, we ask that you would sanctify us with the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace in this beautiful picture of the gospel. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace more and more after the image of our Savior, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I think we're all big fans of rags-to-riches stories. Uh, starting at the bottom, climbing to the top. Uh, there's something that just uh, really resonates with us. It's really compelling when we hear these rags-to-riches stories. Maybe it's the athlete from a rural town who gets the scholarship and graduates top of his class. He can do anything he wants. Maybe it's the single mom who's struggling to make ends meet and then writes the best-selling novel series. I'm reminded of the story of Chris Gardner. Uh, it was uh, played by Will Smith and Jaden, if you recall, in this movie, uh, The Pursuit of Happiness. Maybe you remember that movie. Chris Gardner, he's this guy who is kind of down on his luck trying to provide for his family. He walks into an interview in an undershirt, and he gets the job anyway. He goes from homeless shelters with his son to being a successful stockbroker. There's something about these rags-to-riches stories uh, that just resonates with us. It's something that I think connects uh, its way into the classics of our literature, into our movie theaters, uh, into our own longings and dreams. We love it because it holds out something attractive, something that we would hope would be uh, something we could experience. Uh, the stories seem to say there's no hurdle too high if we're willing to work hard. They seem to say there's no problem that can't be solved if we don't apply just a little bit more elbow grease and determination and blood, sweat, and tears. But the Bible, I would say the whole of the Bible, is an even greater story. It gives us an even greater theme than rags to riches. It's greater because it shows us the solution to a greater problem than just wanting to get out of poverty or humble beginnings or make it in the world. It shows us a greater solution to a problem that we could never overcome on our own. 
not even with 10 lifetimes of hard work and determination. The problem, of course, is our sin. Over and over again, Scripture tells us that what sinners need isn't a rags-to-riches story, but a rags-to-righteousness story. It's not a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps kind of story that the Bible gives us. There's no climbing any ladders. It's far more amazing than that. There's no rags-to-righteousness story without divine intervention. It's something you can't do yourself. The divine solution of mercy and grace in Jesus is what we need. So we'll put the book of Zechariah into uh, its historical perspective in just a minute. Uh, But in Zechariah 3, which we read, we see uh, this rags-to-righteousness story of Scripture. And it begins with you and me dead to rights because of our sin, without any excuse, until Jesus silences the case against us by substituting himself in our place. Or to put it more briefly, Zechariah 3, 1 to 5 is all about the accuser's case against us, silenced by the substitute. So that's how I'd like to unpack these verses together. The accuser's case against us, silenced by the substitute. First, the case against us. When we come to this passage, we find ourselves sitting in the visitor section of God's royal court. Joshua is being brought up on charges in the presence of the divine judge, who is also the king of kings. So who is Joshua? Well, it's not Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Joshua. It's a different Joshua. This is Joshua, the high priest of God's people in Zechariah's day. It's important for us to remember as we look at this story, this is a vision. This is Zechariah seeing all of this in a vision. So here, the real person Joshua of Zechariah's day is standing in this vision as a picture, as a symbol in what the Lord is showing his prophet Zechariah through the vision. So what we have to do is ask, what does Zechariah see? And then what does what Zechariah sees mean in the vision? So what is Joshua in this vision representing? What is he a picture of? Well, in the first five verses we're looking at this morning, Joshua represents the people in this vision. He represents God's people, just like the real high priest Joshua in the day of Zechariah was representing the people before God as he went before God on behalf of them because of their sins. That's what he does as a symbol in this vision too. He stands for the people. So Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, being accused in God's court. He stands impure and unclean before God. And as we said, the high priest represents the people in their impurity, in their uncleanness, in their own guilt. So see, just to put this in some historical perspective, uh, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, was taken into captivity uh, for 70 years in Babylon. They were exiled from the promised land. And now, 20 years after having returned to the promised land, uh, they're back in Judah, but spirits are down. The place of worship In the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem, it has foundations, but it's still not finished. It hasn't been rebuilt. Uh, The people had big ideas about how this restoration would happen when they returned from exile. It seems that even though they've been released, all might be lost. Nothing will be like it was before. But they're really confused about, about what their real problem is. They think their problem is a torn down temple a slow process of restoring the city. 
They think it's taking too long. They think that's the problem, but the problem is much deeper and more personal than that. The fact is that the high priest standing here in the vision, impure and unclean, standing before God accused, shows us what the real problem is. There are really, there are really serious issues that have to be dealt with before they can even think about worshiping God in the temple again. The people have rebelled against God and turned their hearts from him. That was the reason they were sent into exile in the first place. You would think they might get it, but they didn't. And they're back in the land, and they're falling into the same pattern of rebellion and sin. That was the deal when it came to staying in the promised land, by the way. You didn't stay in uh, favor with God, and, and, and recon- you wouldn't stay reconciled to God uh, on, a, on a salvation level by your obedience. But the people were to obey the covenant, or they would be removed from the land. So as it pertains to the land, that was the deal. So it seems like an obvious choice, right? If you want to stay in the land God has given you, what do you do? You obey. You would choose life, and you would choose obedience and loving and serving the Lord. But the people didn't. They didn't choose life. They chose to love and serve other gods. And they were exiled to Babylon. So thinking back to their story. This disobedience and exile is a stark picture for you and me about the deadly wages of sin. Deadly wages of sin. What does Paul say? The wages of sin is death. Exile was like a picture of death in the story of the Bible. What was a picture for us, this deadly price of rebellion against God, it's not the final point in their story. They're back in the land. If that had been the final point, the Bible would have ended with the people being exiled. The end, roll credits, it's over. But they've been brought back to the land after 70 years. They're going to rebuild this holy place of worship. But here, 20 years later, they still don't get it. And they still stand guilty and dirty and stained because of their sin. They're falling into the exact same way of rebellion. So in this vision, you see the whole nation represented by Joshua the high priest standing in God's court with Zechariah looking on, receiving this vision from the Lord, communicating something to the people. And there's this Loctite case made against them. There's no getting out of it. They are guilty. And as we'll see, we also stand guilty right alongside God's people of that day. So let's look first for just a moment at who is this person who accuses Joshua and the people in God's court. And then we'll consider the case that he has against Joshua, the people, and us. So who is this accuser? Well, the accuser is Satan. Satan makes a case against the people as he accuses the high priest in the vision. Verse 1 refers to an accuser, and that's the Hebrew word Satan, which we in English, we just read Satan, but it refers to the accuser, uh, standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is one of the biggest things that the devil does, and we all know this attack of the devil very intimately. He throws believers' sins in their face and tempts them every single day. We have to be careful, right, to distinguish between the accuser's attack against us and the working of our own conscience that God has given us to resist sin and to follow him. Uh, Just for an example, the further I get into my third decade, the uh, more I understand my food conscience. My wife helps me with that a little bit, but I understand why some things are called, you know, decadent chocolate cake or something like that. Uh, My brain tells me what that will do if I indulge in that blissful piece of cake, uh, and that's my food conscience working. 
Well, it's sort of like that with our conscience. As it's trained by the word of God, a well-trained conscience that's informed by the truth of God's word, it's pricked when we're disobedient to the law. That means it's working well. It's functioning well. Our conscience is a huge blessing from the Lord. But our conscience can be out of tune with the gospel. And when it's out of tune with the gospel, that's where the devil uh, can really make easy prey of us if we're not careful. So when you feel this sin, um, or when you sin, you feel this sense of unworthiness. You feel this crushing weight of condemnation. When you believe and love and trust that Jesus is for you, yet you're tempted to crumple into a big ball of despair because you've sinned, that is not the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That is the accuser and his attacks against God's people. It's been said that his goal, unlike a well-trained conscience, his goal is destruction and not redemption. His goal is destruction. I think that's absolutely right. I think we all know the destructive attacks of the accuser who throws our sins in our face and tells us we're not worthy and we can never be forgiven. So here's the thing. When the devil accuses you of sin, is he wrong? No. It's not the whole story. And there's a wonderful answer. There's a wonderful solution that God has given, but he's not wrong. And that's the second thing I want you to see here. When it comes to the accuser's case against Joshua, against the people, against you, he's not wrong. His case is solid. So what's so poignant about Satan's accusations in Zechariah 3 is that, if you recall, no one contradicts him. No one says he's wrong about what he said about Joshua and through Joshua the people. They've been caught with their hand in the cookie jar. They are utterly and completely and definitively guilty. Guilty of all charges. The Lord doesn't say he's wrong about any of it. And Joshua's own silence speaks a thousand words as these verses unfold. The same is true of us. The same is true of us. Even for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and received his cleansing, when the devil accuses you of breaking God's commandments, is he wrong? No, he's not wrong at all. None of us are Teflon-coated Christians. None of us go through day after day after day uh, with nothing that sticks to us. We all have sin. Something will always stick when Satan accuses us. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like a lot is stuck to you. And you're burdened by that. And you wonder what the solution is for that. And if that's you this morning, it's okay. You're not alone. That is the experience of every Christian. So here we're looking at the evidence for Satan's case against Joshua. And we see his case is solid. It's irrefutable. Joshua, representing the people as a whole, is absolutely filthy. Some, some have tried to soften what uh, this vision uh, shows about Joshua and his uh, dirty robes by thinking that it was ashes that he had sprinkled on himself because he was mourning the loss of the temple. Or that he and the people were contaminated, and that's why they're dirty. They were contaminated just by the sinners out there, just by being surrounded by Babylon. But I think we have to face the fact that the word used here in this vision uh, really does no favors to Joshua's condition. His clothes are a stinking pile of filth, and that's putting it mildly. The smell gives the people away. The smell gives us away, too, when we've sinned. You know, sometimes I think it's obvious when we need a change of spiritual clothes. Uh, whenever I get home from the gym and I see Sophie and I'm all sweaty, I just yell, sweaty hug. And what does she do? She goes running out of the room screaming, no, right? Sometimes it's obvious that we stink. But there's actually a more subtle problem. 
and a more dangerous kind of stinking rags that we wear. And it's the rags of our stinking self-righteousness. The worst thing about these rags is that to everyone around us, and sometimes even to ourselves, it seems like we're dressed to impress, right? It feels like we've got it all figured out. Sometimes we think we may just need a little bit of a morality touch-up, a morality makeover, and then we're all good. We're actually pretty good. At least if someone is flagrantly evil, it's obvious, and we can see that. But trusting in our own righteousness leaves us just as guilty in God's court. We need a change of clothes and nothing in our wardrobe of morality and doing good things and being a good person will do. If we trust in our own righteousness for our standing before God, we are absolutely done for. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way. He said, truly, dear friend, if Satan wants to accuse you, any page of your history, any hour of any day will furnish him material for his charges. He says we're impatient one day and we're proud the next, angry another day. I think we all know what that's like. Maybe thinking back over the course of this week, that's true of many of us. Have you been impatient at all recently? Proud? Lustful? Arrogant? Envious? Greedy? Jealous? Coarse or harsh with your tongue? With your thumbs in the era of social media? Going on, Spurgeon says, his heart is full of sins like a den of unclean birds, and he wishes he could wring all their necks. I don't know if you've ever tried to catch a chicken. I grew up in Mexico, so if you've never tried to catch a chicken, I can tell you it's not easy. I'm sure someone here has tried to catch a chicken. It, it, just catching one is hard enough, and our hearts are like a whole stinking chicken coop full of sin, and there's nothing we can do about it. Or I think about when I used to live in Escondido, there, was, there were these green parrots that would fly around Escondido and they would perch right outside my window where I was trying to study and do homework in seminary. And they're squawking. At first they look really beautiful and it's kind of cool, but it gets old really fast because you know what they call a flock of parrots? It's a pandemonium. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no peace when there's parrots outside your window. That's not unlike our sin. There's no peace when we entertain sin in our hearts. And we have plenty of sin to deal with. But we're outnumbered. There's too many of them. We need the Lord to intervene on our behalf. So Satan accuses us, and there's no hiding all of the squawking sins in our hearts. Or getting back to the imagery of Zechariah, there's no covering the stink of the sin-drenched rags that we wear. There's no hiding it. Think about what Joshua stands for in Zechariah's mind, just to make this even bring this home a little bit more, what Zechariah is thinking as he sees this. He's from Judah, and he's seeing his priest stand guilty before God. His priest. You don't want your priest standing impure before God. Purity and ritual cleanliness is crucial if that high priest is going to do his job and represent you before God because of your sins. And here's Zechariah, the or Joshua, the priest, is standing there guilty and condemned and unclean. He can't do his job. He can't cover anything for the sins of the people. What are they going to do? So it's really this double problem the vision illustrates. Joshua represents a sinful people, and then as the priest, he's disqualified to do anything about it. So it's a really big problem. Someone else needs to speak into this story, or everyone is lost. 
So we've seen the accuser's case. It's solid. It's irrefutable. There's no denying it. That alone is terrifying. Let's go on and see now how the gospel breaks through. How the gospel breaks through in this vision. So we've seen the accuser's case. Now let's see how it's silenced by the substitute. Silenced by the substitute. I love the last line of verse 5. Look at it with me in Zechariah 3, 5. The last line of verse 5. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Who is this angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is Jesus. And we know this because the angel of the Lord is the one sitting as the judge, presiding over the case, yet he can speak of the Lord as another person. The angel of the Lord is sitting there and it says, the Lord said to Joshua, the Lord, so you see this dialogue between the two, it's more than just one person. So we could dig into that a little bit more, but the best explanation for this is that this is a a revelation, a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus. We could paraphrase that last line of verse 5, and Jesus was standing by. And that's a line full of gospel hope for sinners. Jesus was standing by is good news if you believe in Jesus. If you turn by faith to him, crying to him to rid you of your stinking rags, whether it's the obviously wicked kind of rags or the delusional morality makeover kind of rags, they're all stinking rags that only Jesus can remove. By faith, you can cling to Jesus for renewal and forgiveness. We, we know the joy, don't we, of having Jesus standing by? 1 John 2, 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus standing by is the good news of grace. And it jumps off the page when all of a sudden we've seen Joshua caught dead to rights. We've seen the accuser's case against him. And then the advocate yells, essentially, silence in the court. He says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And here we see that the accuser's case is silenced by the Lord himself, our substitute. He silences the case against Joshua and the people with two truths that are just as true for you and me today. So I want you to hear these two truths with which our substitute silences the accuser's case. First truth, they're chosen for rescue. The people are chosen by God for rescue. Look again with me at verse 2, where it says, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand, a hot burning iron, plucked from the fire? What does that mean, a brand plucked from the fire? Well, the exile, those 70 years in Babylon, it's referred to as a fire, as a furnace, like the burning uh, Slavery of the people in Egypt and all that they went through there is referred to as the fire, the furnace. That's how the exile is pictured throughout the Old Testament. It was a picture of death. Nothing survives the burning, flaming fire. But that picture, like we saw earlier, that wasn't the end of the story because there was a promise that was older than the law that they had broken. There was a promise older than Sinai, the promise made to Abraham. You see, this is where Satan went so wrong. This is where he went so wrong in his case against Joshua. And it's where he goes so wrong in his case against you when he hurls your sins in your face every single day. Someone I read helpfully pointed out that Satan wasn't looking at all the evidence. 
He pointed to their transgression against God's law, full stop. That's what he does when he accuses us too. He holds up the Ten Commandments and he shows them their disobedience and he marks it up like a teacher marking up an exam with the fiery red pen of judgment and he says, this is what you've done. But he's being subtly deceptive here because he's not showing all of the evidence. He's omitted the fact that, yes, the people have done this, but there's a promise that still stands despite the people's rebellion. There was a promise still yet to be fulfilled. And when he accuses us, he fails to mention the good news promised then is still good news for us today. It's a promise that we need because of our sin. It's the promise of Jesus. Paul talks about this in Galatians. In Galatians 3, he says that the law, given almost 500 years after the promise made to Abraham, it can't nullify the promise God made to Abraham. It can't cancel the promise. It was given later. Had the people given or broken God's law? Yes, they had. But the law cannot cancel the promise. And that promise is Jesus. Paul writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is a promise that you and I desperately need. It's a promise that Jesus will come, and he will save his people from their sins. It's the good news for us today, right here, right now, this morning. Why? Because if Jerusalem wasn't chosen for rescue, there would be no Jesus standing by when the accuser comes against you. Jerusalem was chosen for rescue so that the rescuer could come through her. Your rescuer, our redeemer, Jesus Christ. He rescues all his chosen ones. It's that simple. No Jesus, no rescue. No Jesus, no new robes. Which is the second truth we learn when the accuser's case is silenced by the substitute. So we see they're chosen for rescue. Because of that, there's a rescuer for you and me, Jesus. They're chosen for rescue, but also, second truth, They're clothed in righteousness. They're clothed in righteousness. Here's where we really come to the climax of this rags to righteousness story playing out in this vision. Look at verses four and five with me. Verses four and five. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I, Zechariah interjecting, says, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Here's where the gospel really sings in this vision. The accuser, Satan, slinks off. We don't hear from him anymore. And then we see Joshua, the high priest, totally reclothed. It's this beautiful picture of the gospel. He's totally reclothed. A preacher by the name of Thomas Manton, I think, said it best, uh, talking about these new robes, which we could call hand-me-downs from the king of kings. Manton says, there is no getting the blessing except in the garment of our elder brother, Jesus. That's what the author to the Hebrews says. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. We're consecrated, set apart, made holy children of God by the hand-me-down robes of Christ's righteousness, gained for you and me. So Joshua's symbolic filthy garments, they're removed. 
And so is his iniquity and his sin. And he's given these pure robes of righteousness. And then there's this sort of cherry on top moment that maybe sounded a little strange when you heard it. Zechariah jumps in. I mean, I can't help but think he's sitting on the edge of his seat throughout this vision. And he says, put a clean turban on his head. What in the world does the priest need a clean turban on his head for? The turban is part of the priestly garments that were necessary to make atonement for sin in the old covenant worship of the temple. Joshua sees where this is going. He's got the righteousness of God. Now he just needs the turban and the priest will be ready for service. He wants to make sure the high priest can do his job and we see that's just what happens. This turban is significant because it gives us an answer to a really important question. How in the world is any of this fair? If the accuser's case against us is solid, then how can God just clothe us in righteousness? How is that fair? If we're guilty, shouldn't something have to happen? If we've fallen short of the glory of God and the just wages of sin is death, then why is the gospel fair? Well, as the turban gets put on Joshua's head, the symbolism begins to shift a little bit because no longer do you have this guilty, impure, unclean priest representing the failure of the people and the failure of the priesthood, but now you have a pure, holy, ready-for-service high priest. And at this point, Joshua starts pointing forward to someone who can be our pure, holy, ready-for-service great high priest. Does that remind you of anyone? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. These robes of righteousness are his robes of righteousness. They come to us because of the great exchange of the cross, a pure and perfect priest giving himself as the pure sacrifice for sin, the final sacrifice to substitute in our place. And that's why the accuser's case is silenced by our substitute. I have to push past verse five because you need to hear this. In verse eight, we find that he also represents the branch, an offshoot or a branch from the line, so to speak, a branch of the great king, David, someone who would sit on David's throne. Here's how Jeremiah 23, five to six explains it. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is right and just in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. The Lord, our righteous Savior. In the New Testament, we read these wonderful words, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God a priest who would die for us, a king who will reign forever, conquering death and the grave for us, a priest who clothes us in his own righteous robes, having won those robes for his people with his own blood. And Zechariah 3.9 says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. A single day. A day when suspended between heaven and earth our great high priest Jesus, our substitute, silenced the accuser forever. Exhibit A of his love, of his sacrifice for us, his death in your place, and his righteousness for you. So let me ask you, what do you do with this? Are you seeking peace in your righteous substitute or in your own morality makeover that you attempt every day?
Are you trying to climb the ladder in your own spiritual attempt to attain God's favor, in your own spiritual rags to riches story? Or are you receiving the rags to righteousness story that the Bible lays out for us, the free grace of God in Christ? I hope you'll humble yourself and you'll receive that story as your story. It is the greatest story that could ever be true of you. From rags of sin to righteousness in Christ, all by God's free grace. Christian, when the accuser throws uh, your sin in your face, probably about 45 minutes after you leave this place, and you get cranky, and you're trying to cook lunch, and things aren't going as you planned, and you lose it, just like the exile didn't teach them anything, we need this reminder day after day. Be real about your sin. Own up to it. Plead for grace to persevere to repent and to follow Jesus. But even as you do, you can trust that you have an advocate for you. Jesus is still standing by. And clothed in his righteousness, the accuser has no case against you. So let's pray and thank the Lord for making us a part of this wonderful story of redemption. Father, thank you for this picture of grace that's still just as rich and relevant today because it is true today. Remind us daily that our advocate is beside us, that the accuser no longer has a case against us because of Jesus' robes of righteousness and because our priest and king substituted himself in death for us. Thank you that we now have a high priest who ever lives to intercede for us, praying for us before your throne, and that through him we always have access to the throne of grace for mercy and help in our time of need. Help us to live worthy of this great gift we've received. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.